surviving air travel after you get where you're going take off your shoes and your socks then you walk around on the rug barefoot and make fists with your toes fists with your toes <laughs> I know I know it sounds crazy trust me I've been doing it for nine years yes sir better than a shower and a hot cup of coffee <laughs> okay Okay, I'm a cop. Trust me. I've been doing this for 11 years. Hello and welcome to the sequel cast. The sequel cast is a show where we talk about movies in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt. Um, we have a website called sequelcast, or at sequelcast.com. And if you look us up on Twitter, we're uh, at sequelcast. And if you go on Facebook, we have a sequel cast page there as well. And we're kicking off uh, looking at a new series of films with uh, looking at all four Die Hard films, and in this episode we're going to just look at the first one, simply titled Die Hard. This uh, classic uh, movie came out in 1988, directed by John McTiernan, screenplay by Stephen E. D'Souza and Jeb Stewart, uh, based on the novel Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. Which was itself a sequel to a novel simply entitled The Detective. That is correct. Um, Who you just heard there was Thrasher. The one and only. And uh, Die Hard is one we've been talking about doing on the sequel cast for uh, quite some time, huh? Yeah, yeah it actually kind of shocks me that it took us this long to, to get to it. And and had you done it during my hiatus, I think I would have been very disappointed. This is a, this is a series <laughs> I, have, I have long wanted to discuss on this program. And uh, you had mentioned at the end of the, uh, the last show, the Back to the Future 3 show... That you had only ever seen the first movie before, or is it the first two that you've only seen? Uh, just no, just the original Die Hard. That's all I've ever seen in the series. I will be, I will be going into this franchise pretty fresh. Okay, um, and you know if they're on uh, Netflix, watch instantly. Yes, I believe. Oh, that's pretty cool. At least the first. Uh, mm-hmm. Thankfully, my fourth one on DVD. Oh, okay. I'll be able to get. Well, well, maybe that's uh, not so thankfully as it turns out, but we'll discuss that at the uh, proper time. Yeah, I knew what I was getting. When yeah. I so, Die Hard. Uh, when did you first see this movie? I remember watching it on videotape. I must have been on second grade or something. Our dad showed it to my sister and I, and um, I remember thinking it was pretty uh pretty cool i remember liking uh, alan rickman in particular even when i was younger watching it um do you remember watching this at all uh, the the first time i think i was uh it it was on cable probably uh probably hbo uh my parents were watching it i couldn't sleep so i came downstairs and i watched the second half of it with them okay i i didn't i never i did not see the film in its entirety i think until uh until my teens and and up until i rewatched it for this podcast the last time i had seen it was just after i had uh i had graduated from college oh okay wow uh you know watching this um again something that really jumps to, uh, out in general, you know, before we get into specifics of characters and plot, is that um, even though it's rated R, it doesn't. This might even be considered a PG thirteen today. Like I don't know. You have some fucks. I, you have some fucks in there as far as language goes, but like the blood is fairly minimal. You, you really you consider you consider this minimal? I think so compared to a lot of like modern stuff like Saw or uh, something like that. Yeah. Well, well, I guess I guess I guess that's the difference because I. I'm concerned that if this movie was made today, it would probably end up being NC-17, 
if only yes, there is less overall less violence and brutality in this film than you'd see in in a torture porn movie. But the difference is in this movie, the violence is the violence that they do have is is pretty gruesome and realistic. Gun, the guns are messy. The injuries people suffer are real. It's not it's not the cartoonish sanitized violence you get in movies like Saw. Right, and I mean, I think one thing to keep in mind uh, that I think works with this movie, and it's something that worked with a series of movies we saw um, while you weren't on the show, Thrasher. Uh, uh, Sabrina and I did some shows in the Born Identity movies. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, like uh, Matt Damon in that and uh, Bruce Willis in Die Hard, he looks more like a normal person. His physique is more like a normal, uh, someone in shape, but, you know, more like a normal person compared to the uh, muscular monstrosities that are Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, well, actually, it's, it's, funny, it's funny you mention that, because not, uh, not only is, is John McClane a real, legitimate, everyman character, like a blue-collar, a dedicated blue-collar guy who's pretty near the top of his game... Uh, he exists in a world where action movies exist. He actually makes reference to, to Arnold Schwarzenegger about halfway through this movie. You know, this this is a guy who's seen action movies where crazier stuff than this has happened. It, that grounds the film in reality. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, that's something, but I, also in addition, uh, kind of like uh, Indiana Jones, when we've discussed those movies on the sequel cast before, um, you know, uh, Bruce Willis as John McClane gets beat up a lot in the movie. He's not always winning. He uh, takes the punches as well as giving them. He takes the shots as well as shooting them. And I think that's something that makes the character very endearing. Yeah, we he he's a, the, John McClane is is a wonderfully vulnerable human character, and we we do get the chance to to suffer and then triumph along with him. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, right away, going through the actors, you know, uh, Bruce Willis, uh, before this movie, was mainly known for uh, the TV series Moonlighting. Oh, that was an awesome show. Back back when the Bravo Network meant something, I used to watch reruns of that uh, when I was in high school. And, you know, Moonlighting went on uh, from like 85 to 89, and this came out in 88, so Moonlighting was still going on, but... It was a big change for him to be in a big uh, action movie and, you know, a bit of a risk. But I think also, I mean, Die Hard is, is humorous, but it, you still feel suspense in all these things. It's, it's a bit jokey, but the characters still feel real. And uh, Bruce Willis is, in this film at least, the John McClane character, is all by himself pretty much. And he sort of makes these wisecracks to sort of calm himself, I think, when he's in these really stressful situations. There's not a sidekick spitting one-liners back at him. Oh, yeah, like, and he never, he never, like, bugs for the camera when he, when he gives a quip. Like, the, 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 the quips, the few quips he do have, that he does have, they do sound like something that you might come up with at the spur of the moment when you're under pressure. Right, and, And the, um, The movie doesn't stop to let him deliver the lines. No, I mean, you know, I think the pacing holds up pretty well for an older movie. Uh, why don't we talk about the cast a little bit before jumping into the plot? Oh, yeah. Uh, so we just mentioned Bruce Willis. Uh, Alan Rickman as the uh, Hans Gruber, I think, is real real classic in this movie. Like, this is the Ooh. first big, major, high-profile movie role he had. And um, Yeah, I think this would have been America's introduction to Alan Rickman. Uh, yeah, I believe you're right. Um, and he is excellent. I mean, he, he has a sense of humor. I think he does this sort of evil German terrorist thing well, but he's also kind of charming. And he, uh, you know, after this movie for a while, he was in bad guy roles, whether it was in Quigley Down Under uh, or Robin Hood, uh, Prince of Thieves. You you were about to say Men in Tights, weren't you? I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love I love how the Mel Brooks version of that movie is the one that most people remember. <laughs> I think in I think some ways it's. I think in some ways it's a better movie. I don't know, but Alan Rickman is good in that one too. Uh, Except he's not in that one. Uh, sh- God damn it! No, in the uh, Robin Hood, uh, Prince of Thieves. Well, yeah, yeah, as the yeah. sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, do you like him in this movie? 
I, I, absolutely. Like he, I, I believe him both as a criminal mastermind and as the type of suave guy who can get all these, all these ruthless people together to, to pull off a heist. I can believe that he has the charisma to maintain order with all these people, which is great. Like, unlike so many heist movies, or so many movies where a heist takes place, there's no moment where all the criminals try to double-cross each other. Hans Gruber is that good at keeping these people organized and working together. Yeah, and although you have different terrorists with different personalities, one of them's a nerdy black guy, and uh, there's two that are brothers and so forth, he's really the one that has the most personality, and he's a leader, and they, you're right, they stand by him. And there's a nice sort of simplicity of knowing really who the bad the bad guys are really bad, and it makes them uh, satisfying when when they get killed out killed off throughout the movie. Yeah, b- bad and uh, efficient. I mean, Hans Gruber mm-hmm. is is really surgical with the way he pulls off this crime, and when, when he lets his his subordinates get violent. Yeah, and um, you know, one actor I didn't remember was in this movie it was Reginald Bell Johnson. Oh yeah, I know better as Carl Winslow from the sitcom Family Matters. Don't think about that show for too long, or Urkel will enter your mind. Just just let that roll off your brain. Well, I mean, he also <laughs> starred in um, Crocodile Dundee. He had a small part in that film, and for some reason, I'm thinking he's an Arthur, but I don't think that might not be true. The original one with Dudley Moore, and not the new one with. Um, oh yeah, what's his name? Uh, uh, Russell Brand. Russell Brand. Okay, so I guess he was not in uh, <laughs> Arthur. I don't know why I thought he was. No, you're thinking of Turner and Hooch, but it's easy to get those movies confused. Oh, sure, why not? Yeah, no, he had a small part in Ghostbusters, as it turned out, as a jail guard. But. Oh, you know what's interesting? Uh, you mentioned you mentioned uh, the hacker uh, who only goes by the name of Theo, who works with uh, who works with Hans Gruber. Uh-huh. He's played by uh, Clarence Gillard. I hope I hope or Clarence Gillard. I I hope I hope I am pronouncing that properly, but I I very well may not be. But you know what else he was in? What else was he in? Walker, Texas Ranger. Really? Yep. He was, uh, oh gosh, what was his name? Uh, he played, and of course he, now I'm, he I'm played a Jimmy Trevet. Jimmy Trevet, that's it. Okay. I mean, I, I haven't seen Walker, Texas Ranger, but. Um, well, I've probably seen more of him on Conan O'Brien on the Walker, Texas Ranger level lever bits mm-hmm. than I have in Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah. Um. So, no, I mean, that's. That's all interesting. And the director of Die Hard, uh, the original, uh, John McTiernan, before this, his biggest, his big movie was Predator. And the movie he his career started out with was a little-known horror film called Nomads, starring Pierce Brosnan. Um, that And also has Adam Ant as a small part in that film, which that looks interesting for other reasons. But back to Die Hard. Um... Uh, you got Bonnie Bedelia as uh, as the wife, and I think she's oh, okay. That, that's what you boil her down to. She doesn't she, even get a name with you. <laughs> she doesn't have as much. She doesn't have a whole lot to do in this film. Well, well, she has a lot to do at the beginning of the movie and at the end. But but I'll admit she is almost completely absent through the the middle of this film. Right, and I think you know discussing those basic cast numbers we did. We can move on to talking uh, about the actual movie, where. The whole relationship, I think, between um, John McClane and his wife, Holly McClane, is sort of interesting. It's kind of in a rough patch, you might say, because he has two kids. But his wife is at this, uh, has been working in Los Angeles at a... um, Nakatomi Plaza. That's right, Nakatomi Plaza, for a very successful Japanese company. And Bruce Willis is a is a cop from New York City, and he had to finish up taking care of his cases he was working on over there. Well, well, that's that's the reason he gives, but it's at least my my interpretation of the John McClane character. 
there, you know, there, I, I think, I think that the, the tension, kind of the tension that, that's in, in their marriage, it's, it's not just the separation. It's just that, you know, John, John McLean's a, a real blue collar guy and his, his wife, when it comes down to it, is just far more successful than him. She's got a, a great, high-paying job. She's clearly, clearly moving up in that company. Yeah. And it's mentioned that that the reason she moved out to Los Angeles, it all had to do with a, a promotion. The promotion was kind of contingent you know, on this. And you know, uh, uh, she would uh, the Holly McLean, the Holly McLean character. That's a woman that would have grown up. That would have been that would have grown up just after. Of the sexual revolution, she would be from that that first generation of women who kind of were brought up in the world, knowing that they could go out into the into the the business place and could could climb that corporate ladder. Uh, and I think I think you know he, but John McClane being more blue collar, that that it's it's kind of strange to him, and it's kind of a blow to his pride. So I think when he says he had like six months worth of cases he had to clear up. I think that's kind of an excuse or a stalling tactic for for him to kind of figure out where he stands within that marriage. Right, and you know, I kind of got a sense that he was really more like an East Coast, like you said, blue-collar kind of guy, and he didn't want to have to move out to the West Coast in California. And, um, I mean, obviously his wife's job is successful because she can afford a live-in maid for their two kids. And she doesn't seem to be at home a whole lot. Uh, or that's just guessing off what the movie shows you. You know, it's just a small slice. An evening, if you will. <laughs> An extraordinary yeah. evening in the life uh, of this family. So, um, and, and it's very interesting. We've talked about this several times on the sequel cast. But with the older movies, the pacing is different. And it still takes quite a bit. Till you know the action really start. Till the terrorists come in in the movie and the action really kicks up a notch. Oh yeah, I you love know, the slow burn. It's a really <laughs> slow burn in the beginning where Bruce Willis is on an airplane. He has kind of an inane conversation with the guy next to him, who's like, "You know what's the best feeling in the world is, man? You take off your shoes and your socks as soon as you go in the hotel room. There's the feeling of your bare feet in the carpet. It's fantastic. And even that line is not put to waste because it pays oh, off no. later." When he's in the bathroom and he's like, yeah. he, he does it and he's like, oh, oh, fuck me, this does feel fantastic. And of course, almost immediately after that is when the terrorists show up. Which is <laughs> he's in such a hurry to get out of that situation. That's why he spends the majority of this movie running around in the skyscraper barefoot. And there's even a gag where, like, when he takes out one of the terrorists, yeah. the terrorist has small feet and he can't wear. He the can't guys. wear the shoes. Right, oh. I mean, for I mean, most once the terrorist stuff sets in, you know, John McClane is wearing a wife beater undershirt, pants, and uh, no shoes, and so I mean that makes him extremely vulnerable. And uh, I, I love what one of the movie posters for Die Hard says as the uh, tagline: 12 terrorist, one cop." The odds are against John McClane. That's just the way he likes it. <laughs> I don't know if that's not really accurate because I mean he's really. He's a good cop, and he he can fight well enough, but he wasn't planning to fight all these guys. He just was trying to go to a dinner party with his wife, a, yeah, that's, that's a, a fancy-schmancy corporate dinner party. That, that's clearly a uh, a line that was come, that the advertising <laughs> uh, department came up with without ever having seen any rushes from the movie. Although you mentioned you mentioned uh, the, the, the office party. The, the whole movie takes place on a... Uh, on, and this really makes the movie kind of a historical document. Um, this movie uh, was made and takes place in uh, 1988. Yeah, and it and it takes place at a big a big corporate office party. And just as is you know the the death knell of the go go 80s is coming up, and it's gonna and and with the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s. Is when the old corporate culture is, is, is starts to transition. You know, the ni- the nineties is when sexual harassment really e- entered the forefront of people's minds. This is kind of the the last hurrah, the last sexy sleazy eighties office party that was just kind of a, a a staple of both movies and the corporate culture uh, for for the decade. Right, you have a couple that is trying to do some uh, fucking at the office party, you know, going to the bathroom and they see John McClane and his wife in there, and they kind of scoot out embarrassed. 
But and of course, later they're seen when the terrorists are rounding people up. They're actually going at it in in one of the a different offices. <laughs> I never noticed that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, she, she's topless in that scene. I I need to watch the movie again. Apparently, gonna freeze frame that scene. I suppose. Uh, I mean, it's, it's brief. It's it's not it's not okay. sexy at all. It's brief and pretty yeah. horrific. These guys with guns come in and pull them off of each other and, and drag them outside. Hmm. I mean, the other thing too. Uh, in addition with it being in the late 80s, is that this is a Japanese company is not insignificant. At the time, you know, Japan was doing quite well uh, with a lot of its businesses, and there was a lot of takeovers of American companies or, you know, encroaching into the U.S. And um, that was a big thing. In the, in the 80s, you know, and 90s, you also had the Michael Crichton book, uh, Rising Sun, which later became a movie about, you know, like a big Japanese company in California. And these sort of and companies like uh, like Nintendo and and of course all the different car companies, sort of becoming more popular. At the time, that was a big thing in the late eighties, early nineties. Oh, yeah, Japanese tech was huge. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, um, now you know, in modern times, uh, twenty eleven, you know, when we record this podcast, uh, the Japanese companies aren't doing as well as a whole, and they're being. You know, the, there's a lot of more Korean electronic companies that are doing better because they're able to make things for cheaper than the Japanese. Um, and, and as far as video games go, you know, there's not as many AAA high-budget Japanese titles as uh, American or European developed titles. Well, that, that has to do with a lot of stagnation in the Japanese game development world. Uh, yeah. the, the, the Japanese yeah. RPG became such a huge part of the gaming marketplace, but... It's that form of game has just stagnated. Sure, and um, I mean, there's more of those kind of. This isn't really a video game podcast, but I mean, there's more of those Japanese RPGs made for things like the iPhone or the Nintendo DS or PSP than on uh, Xbox 360 or PS3. I mean, like Final Fantasy 13 took several years to produce and was, in my opinion, not that great of a game. At the end of it, it looked very pretty, but like it just felt so didn't keep up with the times and didn't felt so removed. Um, but that's a completely separate conversation. <laughs> uh, so as so often happens in the sequel cast, stay on target, stay on target. Getting back on uh, Red Leader, uh, getting, <laughs> getting back on topic. Nakatomi yeah. Plaza. Have you ever seen a sexier office building? Uh, from the outside or the inside? Both. I mean, yeah. No, it looks nice. The, the level, the level where all those sumptuous, uh, sumptuous but not overwhelming offices are, and like the the indoor waterfall, which amazingly isn't garish, and that the corporate boardrooms with the Japanese sliding doors and all the models of of, of upcoming development projects. This is a gorgeous office. I mean, it would be worth it to work in that office just to experience the aesthetics of the place. It's it's uh, beautiful. I mean, recently I, I did some temp work in a uh, one of the courthouses in uh, downtown uh, Portland, Oregon, and inside there they had a sort of waterfall thing, but it wasn't a full-blown waterfall. It was something very slight, like water trickling off um, just like maybe a few centimeters off the edge of a wall, and uh, aesthetically that was very appealing. And in that same way, you know, it's how... It's it's big. The Nakatomi Plaza in Die Hard. It's big and it's ritzy, but at the same time, it's not gauche. Yeah, there is there is something austere about the the way they decorated this office, and it's and it's a shame to see uh, to see the beauty of this office get fucked up by bullets and C four and and everything else that gets thrown around in this movie. Yeah, and it's uh, well worth noting that the uh, director of cinematography. On uh, this film, the cinematographer, I guess I should say, is John DeBont, who later became a director in his own right with such movies as Speed, Twister, um, Laura Croft, Tomb Raider 2, The Cradle of Life. So, I mean, he's had his directing career of his own, and he was a, a cinematographer on such big 80s films as Hunt for the Raw October and, um, oh, Jesus... Cujo, that's an awful example. <laughs> uh, a lot of early Paul Verhoeven stuff as well, like Turkish Delight, uh, Katie oh, Tipple. Yeah. So, at any rate, I think the cinematography looks good in this film. You have a lot of effective use of shadows, 
where I, I noticed in some scenes you had like the the window blinds, and you see the shadows of the window blinds on characters as they're talking in certain rooms. He doesn't overdo it with the Dutch angles either. There's like just no, the perfect no. amount of Dutch angles in this movie. Right, there's some of those, not a lot. And um, watching the movie, you know, one thing that stuck to me is kind of dated is uh, the character of Argyle, the limo driver, played by Devereux White. How how did that strike you? Well, you know, um, um, on the one hand... Like I, I like that he's he's a young man that that is moving up in the up in the world. You know where he you know, he's 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 hip, he's confident. He mentions how he he used to be a cab driver, but of course now he's driving limos. That's got to be a bigger, better job for him. Sure. But but at the same but but you know and and he does. I like the way he interacts with John McClane when he picks John McClane up from the airport. Uh, yeah, it's a device how- to get exposition across. Yeah, it's have, the kind of joking back and forth between John McClane and uh, Argyle. Yeah, and, and actually, I mean, you you do learn a lot about the characters, the, the characters when you see them interact, like how John McClane, even though even though his uh, the the Nakatomi Company, his wife through the company has arranged this limousine for him, he sits up front with Argyle. He doesn't sit in the back. It probably doesn't occur to him to do that. And <laughs> you know, they you know Argyle draws a lot of information out of him. Um, but at this, and, and you know, they play that that Christmas rap. But but I guess the thing with Argyle is that is that once when he drops John McClane off, because John McClane doesn't know whether he's going home with his wife or not. So Argyle, since the company's paid for the cab for the night, agrees to hang around and wait to hear from John McClane whether he and his wife will need a ride home or not. Yeah, in the garage of the Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah, and, and once he's in the garage, he's just sitting, gabbing on the phone, and kind of funking out. And not really doing anything, and kind of like you know, well, we have, we've got a young Negro gentleman in a limousine. We're going to cut to him. Let's give him some business to be doing, bobbing his head to a rap song. And like, yeah, that's, I mean, there's a lot of that, it. and he's like going into the um, you know complimentary liquor cabinet and drinking and stuff. Well, I, I I've got nothing against that because I would do that. <laughs> If, if I, mean, I was if I was driving yeah. a limo and I was going to be stuck in a parking garage for a while, I would break into I would break into the miniature bottle of hypnotique vodka as well, which had not been invented yet. But I would have a time machine specifically to gather liquors from the future for me. What is hypnotique vodka? Uh, it's it's just a fancy designer vodka that has an uh, overblown uh, price. Oh, uh, okay. I, I've had it, like, I've never had it straight. I've only had it mixed with things, so I really have no idea uh, what distinguishes it from other vodka. And and hopefully there is something besides the branding and the price, but uh, I'm, I'm not a vodka expert, unfortunately. Although I do, on occasion, make my own infusions. But, but yeah, the sort of Argyle just kind of, they keep cutting back to Argyle. It's almost like a bad kind of comic relief, like all this crazy stuff is going on in the building, and then we cut to Argyle, just jiving in the car and having a good time. Although I am glad that at the end of the movie, when uh, when Theo is getting ready to make his escape with some of, with you know some of the stolen goods, I like that Argyle is savvy enough to realize something suspicious is going on and and uh, and hits Theo hits Theo's am- uh, stolen ambulance. Uh, with with the limo, thus preventing him from escaping, you know, with with the goods. I like that he gets that chance to be a hero. I just, I don't know. I just, I feel like, I feel like Argyle should have been doing something a little bit cooler, a little bit more awesome while he's waiting down there. Like, you know, he 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 has a CB radio too. I like, I yeah. Kind of, and at I, one point, he picks up some of the police stuff on a CB radio. Yeah, I feel like I feel like he should have gotten a little bit more involved. I feel like we should have had a scene or a little earlier where he's putting two and two together, you know. I I I, I don't know. It's he's he's wasted for that middle section, but he's great at the beginning and great for the end. And you know, it's kind of there's kind of something similar to that going on. Oh, excuse me. There's kind of something uh similar to that going on with uh, the the character of Sergeant Al Powell by uh, Reginald Van Johnson, who's just kind of a who's you know he's just you know kind of stereotypical fat donut eating uh, cop. 
Well, uh, I mean, they give him a monologue at the end of the film where he talks they, about that he doesn't use a gun because he accidentally shot a kid in one of his early uh, missions as a police officer, and because of that, he's I mean, been more of a, a traffic cop sort of thing. The, the character, the character has has some weight, but up until we learn that about the character, all he really is is a is is this voice that's advocating for John McClane over the radio, but, like, I don't know, like, like for for the one person who realize, who knows who John McClane is and what he's up against and who's the only person on the outside that really trusts John McClane and gives him the benefit of the doubt, I wish he was a little bit more active. Like, like do, do you realize, did you see how many times people take his radio away from him? Well, not only that, I mean, you're talking about characters being active, there's a whole sequence kind of around the middle of the movie where uh, John McClane, you know, Bruce Willis, doesn't, he's sort of stuck on this floor watching out the window as cars are being blown away and stuff. And um, I do think it's interesting in the movie how they do have the escalation of uh, one cop car to a squad of police cars to the FBI coming involved in this incident. And they all are sort of blown away uh, bit by bit as they show up for different reasons. Mm, yeah. But also, and during those whole sequences, John McClane is sort of stagnant, and he's not actively doing something. He's sort of watching these horrors that unfold in front of him. And I'm not sure if that's the best way to, uh, to do things, but uh, one thing I did notice in this movie is one of the terrorists, the... Um, the Asian terrorist played by Al Leon, I recognized him because he played Genghis Khan in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That's that's right. I actually recognize him. He has a very distinctive well. face and he's been in a lot of other eighties films like Big Trouble in Little China and um the original Lethal Weapon apparently. Um and he had a part in uh, the ninety eight US Godzilla film. But, I mean, regardless, I thought that was sort of funny, because I, I recognized that face, and I had to think about it, and I was like, oh, yeah, he was Genghis Khan. Well, you know, he, he really, he, he he looks, he looks like Genghis Khan. It's almost yeah. like, it's almost like he was just <laughs> moving between the sets of Bill and Ted and uh, Die Hard, and all he's doing <laughs> is changing costume. They don't change the makeup, they don't change the hair. <laughs> Good. Um, so, I mean, back to Die Hard, I think, you know, this movie influenced so many action movies throughout the years. The big joke, and in fact it was actually used in actual movie pitches, is that you pitch an action movie as Die Hard in a, in a building is what Die Hard is. But, you know, things like Die Hard on a, on a bus would be speed. And die Hard on a boat, speed too. Yeah, right. Die Hard on a train, Die Hard. Wasn't that one of the Die Hards? No, but that's one of the Steven Seagal's. Uh, oh, right, right. Under Siege 2, I think, was on a train. It die hard in an oil well, die hard in a submarine. Right, and I mean, it's something where the... Um, and I was thinking this watching this film again for the sequel cast, and again, our website is at sequelcast.com if you want to check out uh, old episodes and stuff, is that... Die Hard, in some ways, is a perfect video game movie without being based on a specific video game. Because you have multiple floors, you have different opponents he has to face, oftentimes with multiple weapons. And without it meaning to be, at the time of it being made, I think it sort of captures feelings of a video game, uh, watching it now. Well, you know, it's, it's a kind of a, a structure that's similar to a lot of like kung fu movies, where you're... You're you're fighting your way through the different henchmen to get to the big boss of, yeah. of yeah. you know whatever group, and you know you're you're as you fight as the as the champion fights progressively more challenging foes, he gets closer and closer to the villain's headquarters. And... Right. No, and uh, and that's true. And uh, one of my favorite scenes in this whole film is there's a time where uh, John McClane bumps into Hans Gruber. Oh yeah, it's towards the end, isn't it? It, it, it is towards the end, and. Um, I guess we'll talk about it now. But Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber, you know, it kind of panics and, and puts on a really not very good American accent. It, it's about as good as the American accent that, uh... Oh, hell, the Hannibal Lecter guy. 
Oh, Anthony Hopkins? And, yeah, it's about as good as Anthony Hopkins' American accent, which is not good. No. <laughs> I mean, it's so, like some words sound okay, but then certain... It's just so bizarre, but somehow John McClane buys it and sort of thinks, oh, this... this uh, no, no, that's the thing. You think John McClane You McClain think he does. It. Yeah. But meanwhile, Hans Gruber has a pistol hidden. And uh, I, I think that's a really fun scene where, you know, they get to face off a little bit, but it's not the ultimate showdown uh, in the film. I mean, there's so many cool ways that the, the terrorists are killed in this movie. I love the scene where... John McClane is underneath the table hiding, and a guy is on top of the table shooting down at him. Before he gets a real chance to shoot so much, John McClane fires through the table and hits the guy. Several times in the crotch. Several times in the crotch, yeah. More bullets than what's necessary, arguably. Well, you have to be... Well, because John McClane doesn't know whether he's even hitting the guy, so he kind of has to unload and get out that spread. Right. That is true. Yeah, oh god, and I love like the, the very first the very first uh, terrorist. John McClane really almost takes down by accident because they get you know it starts as a shooting fight and then it just turns into a bare knuckle brawl between John McClane and the big German guy. And in the course of the fight, they both fall down the stairs. And it just so happens that when they hit the bottom, John McClane is on top of the German guy who broke his neck in the fall. It's it's not as if McClane was even trying to take the guy out. It's just the way fate dictated. Mm. And then, of course, it's even better. He takes he takes the guy, ties him up. Uh, <laughs> he takes the guy's machine gun, ties him up, puts him on the elevator, goes up to the floor where the terrorists are, are, are and yeah. the elevator opens, and they see the German guy. He's wearing a, he's wearing a sweatshirt that says, <laughs> "Now I have a machine gun." Ho ho ho! ho, ho. ho. Yeah, it's so great. I love that sense of humor. It, and he's he's wearing all the Santa Claus stuff, and I, what's fun? I just like how Alan Rickman walks up to it and reads it out loud, which isn't really necessary, but it's a lot of fun. Well, I don't know. He, he's I think he's the kind of villain that loves hearing himself speak, so he probably it's for his own ego that he reads it out loud. Yeah. Oh, well, actually, if we can talk more about when Bruce Willis or when when John McClane and uh, and Hans Gruber. Uh, encounter each other on the roof, and Gruber is pretending to be an employee of the Nakatomi company that, that snuck away. Right, you I mean, it's not exactly... about, and he's in that suit, he looks exactly like Tom Green. <laughs> With the goatee? Yeah, like, I just, yeah, I like the way he's kind of freaking out, it just, uh-huh. it looked, all I could think of is, this is, this is Tom Green. Tom Green is trying <laughs> to freak out John McClane. <laughs> uh, I haven't thought about Tom Green in a very long time. Wow. Well, maybe you should. He's a cancer survivor. He uh, is a testicular cancer, right? Yep. Yep. Um. So that is. <laughs> um. Die hard. Die hard. Die hard. Oh. Oh, you know what else? What? Because uh, because the nice thing is before McLean and, and and Gruber ever actually meet each other. John McClane eventually gets a walkie-talkie, which he turns on to an emergency band to try to call out and get help. And, of course, the, the uh, Gruber and his guys are monitoring that band because, you know, the, the police getting involved are all part of their long-term plans. for the. But it is kind of strange. He, he calls, you know, the, the police, and they say, this is an emergency line. Please call 911 unless this is an emergency. And he's screaming that, oh, there's terrorists shooting at me. But the police don't seem to take it very seriously because they just sent uh, Sergeant Al Powell by himself to investigate it. But I mean, you got to consider when this movie came out in 1988. Terrorism wasn't a huge. I mean, you had terrorist events around the world certainly, but it wasn't as huge in American culture as with 9/11. Oh yeah, in 2001. But but one but one thing about that though is because because from that point. Uh, Gruber and McLean have a lot of back and forth over the walkie-talkies. They taunt each other. And at one point, Gruber is taunting him, giving this whole speech about how he's an American who grew up and saw too many cowboy movies and whatnot. Like, now you think, now you think of being John Wayne. And I love that McLean is like, it's like it says he, he always fancied himself more of a Roy Rogers character. Uh, he always liked the, he always liked the spangled, uh, the spangled cowboy suits. 
And I like that that comes back because when he starts talking on the radio with Al Powell, you know, Al asks him what his name is. And, of course, he's not going to give his real name because he doesn't want the terrorists to know who he is. He doesn't want the terrorists to know that his wife is in the building. So he says, Roy. And the outside world knows him as Roy for most of this this. Uh, this movie, I like that. That's his cowboy hero name. I like that it's Roy Rogers and, yeah. and not John Wayne and, and not uh, Clint Eastwood. And I gotta say, those Roy Rogers movies—they're really fun. You really ought to ought to look at them. Roy Rogers and his and his horse Trigger and Gabby Hayes is in those, and they're they're really entertaining. They're they they have a sweetness to them. They're they're, they're like they're westerns that exist outside of time. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen those. I recall at one point I had some videotape as part of a collection that had highlights from a Roy Rogers uh, TV special or something. But um, one um, character I like in the movie that uh, is typical in 80s movies, the sleazy guy that's trying to sleep with uh, McLean's wife with a beard. Who does cocaine. Who does cocaine as well, of course. Uh, played by Hart Bachner, he plays Harry Ellis. He's really good at being that sleazy kind of guy. I mean, you see this role in a lot of 80s movies. I'm thinking of the guy with the beard in the movie The Fly with Jeff Goldblum. Mm. He's a very similar kind of part. The bearded douchebag. Uh, bearded douchebag. Right. You see, he has a beard, and you know he has to be a douchebag, unless he's Sean Connery or someone. So, But I, I think that's sort of fun, where he's really hitting on the wife pretty heavily, and... Oh, yeah. You have some kind of question, and how how faithful is um, Holly McLean to John well, McLean? Because at her job, she goes by oh, I miss Holly Gennaro by her maiden name, because she feels that a Japanese company, if they know she's married, they won't take her as seriously as a businesswoman. Well, I there was there's never any question in my mind. I, I think she she always has been uh, faithful to her husband. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is that worry in John McClane's mind and in her mind uh, that if they're separated, one of them, you know, could could stray. But I mean, the, the, the fact the fact is, let, let's assume let's assume that that she she had been cheating on her husband. Yeah, she could do much better than the bearded douchebag. <laughs> she and could. And the way she turns him away, it's clearly you know she's tur- she's not turning him away like I can do better than you. She's turning him away like, I'm a married woman. I'm not going to tolerate this. I think it's kind of funny, but kind of weird at the same time when Bruce Willis, you know, sees his wife and they're talking privately in the bathroom. He takes off his shirt and is, like, soaping up his, his armpits. Like, I don't know. Like, I know every whenever I get off a plane, I feel gross, like, I want to take a shower. But couldn't he have waited to, like, not use the sink in the bathroom? Well, it's, <laughs> well what, what other sink is he going to use? I don't know, but it's just sort of strange. It's like, I'm going to go wash my armpits right, right now when my wife is talking to me. I don't think it's strange. It's, it's blue no. collar. I mean, I've done stuff like that. Okay. I, uh, I stand corrected, I guess. And it's not always my armpits. All right. Oh, oh, although, speaking of armpits, do you notice speaking towards the end of the movie when, when, yes, armpit chat, a new feature here on Sequel Guest. <laughs> uh, here in the armpit. If you notice at the end of the movie, when 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 you know when Gruber thinks he has John McClane in his mercy, and John McClane has his hands behind his head, yeah. you notice that his armpits appear to be shaved. I did not. Um, that's interesting though, because they're quite hairy when he's washing them. I noticed that much. Yeah, like there's 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 like there's just like a shadow under his arms, but there's like there's like no hair. Maybe he had an armpit double. Well, maybe he was maybe he was so close to an explosion it burned the armpit hair off. <laughs> Oh, and there is a hell of an explosion about midway through the movie when when he when he steals the C four uh, from from the bad guys. Yeah, like that seemed a little over the top to me. It, it is. It's it's like the it's like because because it's on like the 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 floor that blows up when he throws the explosive down the elevator shaft. Mm-hmm. It is a floor that's under construction, so we know there's nobody down there. And nobody's really going to get injured. But at the same time, the explosion is so big and covers the entirety of the floor. It, it's like they were keeping. It's it's like that's where they were keeping all the acetylene in the building or something like that. But what he's just doing that just to get the attention of the police down below that this is a serious situation to get to get the attention, but also to deny the, the to deny the bad guys a very potent weapon. You, know, you can only blow up that stuff once. 
I do appreciate in this movie you have sort of the uh, conflict between the FBI agent and uh, Sergeant Al Powell, where they're like, well, how do you know this John McClane guy that's talking to you, or this Roy Rogers guy, is a, um, you know, isn't one of the terrorists? And I think that's a valid point to bring up. But yeah, but at the same time, Powell, you know, he has that kind of good cop instinct. He can tell another cop, and it's and you know you if 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 you're not if you're not a beat cop, you can't really explain that to other people. You can't explain the cop sense. But it's like it's like that in in a lot of in a lot of professions. You know, you just you know how to spot somebody who does the thing that you do. You yeah, know, it's like that with a lot of it's like that with a lot of guys in the army as well. That's true. That's very, very true. Um, the music in Die Hard is sort of interesting that there's not a lot of it. There's a lot of sort of uh, Christmas music. Do you think that works? Yeah, I think it works really well. I mean, it, it is appropriate for the se- it is appropriate for the season. I like that they don't like hit you over the head that it's Christmas. Like the, the decorations in the Nakatomi Building aren't like out there like I, I can actually I think only that plastic Santa Claus with the with the with the hat is like the only real and oh and the Christmas tree in the lobby like those are the only like real Christmas decorations that are up you know they, they didn't go overboard with that and and that touch of Christmas music you know does let you know what time of the season this is and what everybody's probably thinking about and would rather be doing than being held hostage um, and even even like the, the Christmas rap uh you know, it's 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 a it's a real silly, but it kind of makes sense. That's the cheesy kind of Christmas rap that you would get playing on the radio uh, in that era. Oh, but we got we got to talk about the use of "Ode to Joy." It's used uh, quite a lot in this film. I mean, it's used so well. Are you talking about the scene where they break into the safe finally? Yeah. It does. It has this very, you know, uh, an orchestral arrangement of Ode to Joy while it does close-ups to the different terrorists, and they're so happy they've broken through all seven levels of the uh, safe. Broken seven seals, as it were. Yeah, not level of seals. And, I mean, that's something that, you know, that takes the, uh, the terrorist a long time to do. Yeah, I like I like that. I like that it's not like okay, we hack the code, we're in. I like that they have to decrypt things. I like that so. They I mean, have part of what the money. terrorists are in there for is they're getting these, uh, or they're getting well, the they're money terrorists. from the bonds in the safe. They're, that's, they're criminals disguised as terrorists, right? But they're also aren't they demanding the release of like uh, Germans? Yeah, but that's just a distraction. When, when they finally get in contact with the FBI. Um, you know, Hans Gruber just rattles off a list of political prisoners he demands be released. And, like, he even jokes about that, that last person I just read about them in Time magazine. He has no political agenda. It's all a stalling tactic. It's all to distract the FBI and, and the police to make them think that they're dealing with one sort of criminal activity when, in fact, they're dealing with another. You know, you know the, these guys, just, you know, just like the go-go 80s businessmen, they just want to be rich, except that for them to get rich, they're going to steal a whole bunch of savings bonds. Hmm. Or bear bonds, oh, I'm sorry. Right, I must have missed that part. I guess I was sort of... It's, it's a great scene, because you know, they, they, they make that, that clear. You know, they, have, they have no political agenda. I'm sure individual members probably have a, a, a political agenda and will probably funnel that money towards some operations. But but it's pretty clear to me that Hans Gruber, Theo, and most of them are just in it for the money. They've just decided, fuck politics. I, I'm going to be. I'm just going to be rich and live in my own private little kingdom. It's fun to see what glee they have. They seem to really enjoy what they do. Oh yeah, it's it's a challenge, and they relish the challenge. Like even when even when things start going wrong, you know, Hans Gruber never fumes and yells and threatens. You know, he just maintains the same level of threatening authority. And it says, "Oh well, this is just you know, oh this is just a complication, a monkey in the, a monkey in the works. We'll just uh, we'll forge ahead." I think the uh, newscaster stuff in the movie I could have lived without. There's not a whole lot of it, but it just seems like an unnecessary additional group of people to bring to the scene, in addition to the police, the police and the FBI. Mm, yeah, but it does it does serve it does serve a useful purpose. 
though, because because when the when the reporters get involved, the reporters track down McLean's. Uh, they find out who McLean is. They track down his family. They get his kids on camera. Uh, and then that's how Hans Gruber learns about John McClane's wife because he sees that photo that has the kids and the woman and sees you know sees John McClane. So that still plays into the movie. It still serves a purpose. It does. It does. And you know, um, to be fair, they also don't spend a lot of time with the kids, which I think is fine. I mean, had the kids been at this Christmas party. Oh been. Lord, no! You, you would never have. Kids. There's too much coke and sex at these these things. They would not yeah. have kids, unless the party was in Taiwan. That's true. You know, I, I just think overall this movie holds up pretty well. Uh, you know, I didn't. I think it has a lot of really fun action. Even though you know sometimes it, it is an action movie, it goes kind of into the preposterous where. Uh, John McClane is hanging onto a, a fire hose that goes off the side of the building, and he shoots his way back in, which is really cool to watch. It, well, it, it seems plausible in the moment, although I'll freely admit, I don't know if Mythbusters has tackled that, uh, that one yet. <laughs> I wish they would, though. They, they probably could do a whole episode on Die Hard Myths. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, you know, the, one of the scenes that I remember from Die Hard so much is where... John McClane's trying to hide, and the uh, the terrorists shoot the glass because they know he's barefoot, and he has yeah, to walk in oh. the bare feet over the glass, and his feet are all cut up, and he's digging chunks of glass out of his feet. Oh yeah, and you see oh. him like pulling himself into a bathroom, to, and, and he's trailing blood from his feet. Yeah, you know, I, I've noticed um, if you really want to disturb an audience, do something to the character's eyes or do something to the character's feet. For whatever reason, like those are the parts of the bodies I see see people cringe at the most at when they're when when they're harmed in some way. Right, and you know, and walking on glass, I think that's something, you know, not everyone's been shot at, but almost <laughs> everyone, I'm sure, is stepping on a piece of glass or cut their foot somehow. Oh, it's just yeah. not a great experience. Like, it's something that lets you relate to John McClane more. Oh, yeah, that's what, that's something I, I love about John McClane, though, is he, he gets injured. His injuries stick with him. Yes. From that point on, you know, he's limping because he's walking on cut-up feet. That yep. He's barely bandaged up, bandaged up with torn strips of cloth. I mean, he takes some punishment in this movie. And I, I do like at the end of the movie, there's a nice reveal where uh, one of the, you know, um, Hans Gruber is dealt with. He's knocked out the side of the building and falls to his death. And there's one terrorist still alive that comes out with his gun and is ready to shoot at John McClane. Oh, yeah, the German guy's brother who wants to avenge his brother's death. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you hear these shots ring out, and you don't know who they're from. And you see it's from Sergeant Al Powell. Yeah, he's, he's, had, he's sort of reached his hero moment. He's gotten over the trauma of his past. He drew, he drew his gun and, and took, down, you know, took down a real threat. It's a nice moment. It gives a bit more to the character. I agree that, you know... With uh, both uh, Al Powell and with Argyle, there's not a lot to those characters, but at least you have um, African American actors playing those parts instead of more white guys. You know that's something that's sort of interesting, even though they're just supporting parts and kind of played for laughs in some respects. Oh, you know, I, one thing one thing I did notice though. When I'm when I'm uh, watching this film, I think I did notice one flaw in Hans Gruber's plan because they they steal all those bearer bonds. Yeah, yeah. They must have. Oh wait, never mind. I just did a little bit of independent research. I was about to say they must have a hell of a fence to, to be able to get those to get those bonds and, uh, and 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 cash them out without nobody finding out. I just did some research. Uh, bearer bonds. Are unregistered securities. Ah, okay. So making them effectively, so you know, there's no, there's no in. real records of ownership yeah. that makes them effectively untraceable. So, yeah, brilliant plan, Hans Gruber. Absolutely brilliant plan. You just didn't count on John McClane. <laughs> and um, it it is very satisfying. I won't say in which movie, but in one of the later sequels, they have a character that's related to Hans Gruber, which is kind uh-huh. of fun. And also, as we remember from Reanimator, the doctor who who dies uh, at the beginning of Reanimator is Doctor Hans Gruber. 
Oh, is he? Is that on purpose? Uh, I don't know, actually. Like, I've, I've, I've seen lots of documentaries about the making of that movie. I've listened to all the audio commentaries that are available, and I've never heard, heard that name referenced. So I don't know if it was like, oh, hey, let's, let's mention this. Hmm. Or let's let's put in this reference to a top movie, or or if uh, or if it's just an amazing co- no, it couldn't be a coincidence because Reanimator came out in '85. This was '88, so oh okay. So this would, I guess it would later. be more likely that but Die Hard pulled it from Reanimator, or they were just like, well, what's what's a terrifying what's a terrifying German name? Hans Gruber. Because I could, I could, I mean, I, I know it has nothing to do with the movie, but I could imagine like a Nazi commandant Hans Gruber. Yeah, sure. No, that would work. Uh, so, I mean, overall, what I think one of the strengths of this uh, original Die Hard film, the first one, is that it's truly John McClane all by himself in this action situation, and with having a huge building with different floors, it's a lot of. Suspense, a lot of situations where characters can hide out. It's a very fun environment, I think, to set something in. Oh yeah. Well, a very kind of unassuming environment, like you know, just like top-notch office at a at a Christmas party. I, I don't think I think that's that's a that's a place you wouldn't expect to be to be uh, attacked by uh, criminals disguised as terrorists. Sure. No, you're right. Um, any last thing you want to say about Die Hard? Well, you know what? Well, it's it's the Cadillac of action movies. I mean, so so many later action movies ripped this off, tried to capture lightning in a bottle like Die Hard, but there is only one Die Hard, and that's Die Hard. And there's only one John McClane, and that's John McClane in Die Hard. But, you know, some, something we haven't talked about, we have not talked about the most quoted line in this movie. Um, or the... Um is it where you they list the motherfucker? Oh, I thought it was when they list the ingredients in a Twinkie. Um, no, no, I've heard Yippie Kaye motherfucker quoted more often than the listing ingredients in a Twinkie, <laughs> which they do at one point when he talks to Sergeant Al Powell. But if you were directing this movie, it would have been a ho ho. Oh, uh, I like the ho hos and yim yams. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but but like it's just like a great little line because it's it's all part of uh, McLean and Gruber's banter when he's like you know so are you going to be the cowboy you guy motherfucker and then you, but and it's and it's not like a big thing he says it's just like a little it's one of those little quips he slips in you know the movie doesn't stop he doesn't get to pose and say his line it's just part of the conversation and that's what makes it work so well it's just it's just such a shame that what is a recurring line become a punchline in in all of the sequels and um, sadly, in one of the sequels, I won't say which, they have to censor that line somewhat. Well, anytime you see the TV version of Die Hard, uh, they're going to censor the line, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Um, I have a story about uh, watching the TV version of Die Hard 3, but I'll save, oh, that, for yeah. that. I'll save that for that show, because okay. it was quite bizarre I, how they censored that film. Because I think when I've, seen, when I've seen censored versions of Die Hard, usually they just kind of extend it, they just dub it as... Yippee ki kaye they you know so they get you know the whole you know so that so that the words sync up with the mouth but it's it's just such a great great little line you know yeah you know with the the TV version I think of Die Hard two Die Harder they change it to Yippee Kaye Master Falcon which uh, doesn't uh, make, doesn't make any sense that's one of the more famous changes yeah Master Falcon I've heard that one it's it really, it really is a shame. And, and of course, what's always the best is when they overdub the swear words, like in ADR, and they don't get the original actors or a really good sound alike. So sometimes the pitch completely changes. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, just, it's just one movie where like it's just so clearly different, the, the, uh, different voice. Uh, we, for whatever goddamn reason, when they used to show anime on the Sci Fi Channel and they showed Dominion Tank Police, there's some swearing in that, but it's not excessive. And they overdubbed damn them, damn them, to darn them, darn them. And it's just like, you know, darn those tank police, darn them, darn! And it's so clearly an intern that they got to dub that line. <laughs> I can't stand it when they do that in movies. Just keep, keep, the, keep the dialogue intact. When, when you are being shot at, you will probably swear. Uh, yeah, I think that's safe to say. On that end, I think we'll round out our discussion of Die Hard 1 here in the sequel cast. 
Uh, remember to check out the website, SequelCast.com. If you go on Facebook, look up SequelCast. You can talk to us there. There's been a lot of fun uh, conversations on there lately with our listeners. And um, uh, Twitter is uh, at SequelCast. Um, so, until next time, uh, this is Matt. And Thrasher. Saying, uh, let's say, yippee ki yay motherfucker. Well, I, I, was, I was hoping we could do when Alexander reached the end of his domains, he wept, for he saw there were no worlds left to conquer. Okay, let's try that. Uh, okay. So this <laughs> I is don't Matt. Know if we can keep it synced. Maybe we should yeah. just do the yippee ki <laughs> Nope, we'll try that one. I, I've already forgotten what it is. We gotta go. Okay. <laughs> okay. So until next time, this is Matt. And Thrasher. For Sequel Cast, saying, Yippee-ti-yay, motherfucker. I thought you were going to do the Alan Rickman thing, but that's okay. Oh, would you like me to? Sure. Okay. <laughs> so until next time, this is Matt. And Thrasher. For sequel cast, saying... When Alexander reached the edge of his domain, domain, he wept. wept. For he saw so there were no worlds left to conquer. Uh, maybe Yip-Ki-Pi-Kai-A was better. Okay. Good One night. of the benefits of a classical education. <laughs> yes. All right. Good night. I gotta have dinner. Good night. Okay, bye. It was fun. Oh, I enjoyed it. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. It doesn't show signs of stopping, and I bought some corn for popping. The lights are turned way down low. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow.